Penn State Conversations is a podcast produced by the Donald P. Bellisario College of Communications. Episode topics range from the people, programs, and events that shape the Bellisario College to discussing key aspects of life in the professional world for young and upcoming communications alumni. Please enjoy this episode of Penn State Conversations. Welcome to this week's episode of the Belisario College of Com Conversations podcast. I'm your host, Katie DeFiori. For this week's episode, I interviewed Sham Sunder. He is the founder of the Media Effects Research Laboratory here at Penn State. In his lab, researchers are looking into how people react to different forms of online communication. This past September, Sham was named the James P. Jamiro Professor of Media Effects. In this episode, Sham and I will be discussing the impact of fake news on how people consume information. We'll talk about the echo chamber effect and how social media sites are personalizing content to fit individual preferences. And we'll talk about what journalists can be doing to make sure consumers are reading more accurate information. My name is S. Sham Sundar. I'm the James P. Jamiro Professor of Media Effects uh, and the co-director of the Media Effects Research Laboratory here at the Belisario College of Communications at uh, Penn State University. My specialty is in studying the effects of uh, media technologies on uh, human psychology. Cool. So let's talk a little bit about what you're working on right now as far as your research goes. Sure. In my own research group, we look at uh, the effects of interactive media and uh, how those uh, interactive media are processed by users. By processed, I mean how they uh, take in the information that comes to them through interactive media. And these could be anywhere from websites to mobile media to social media to uh, current day smart speakers like Amazon, Alexa, and even uh, robots. So we look look at all these different kinds of media that interact with human beings and how the information through those media are processed by um, uh, human users as well as uh, how the information is uh, perceived by um, human users. So one of the key things that we worry about when we talk about technology is the degree to which uh, technology kind of alters content of traditional media. And so, for example, these days we worry about uh, fake news. And uh, one of the things that we've been looking at is how technology can uh, intermediate between um, creators of fake news and actual consumers such that we can uh, deliver credible news uh, to the end users. We have been doing some studies on um, characteristics of fake news and how we can automate certain technologies to kind of automatically detect fake news and kind of weed that out. Uh, we are also doing some studies on how smart speakers like Amazon Alexa can be a conduit for information, news information, and how that can help um, in some way gatekeep information to make sure that the uh, receiver gets uh, only credible news and not uh, fake news. Uh, and so we've been doing some experiments with how Alexa reveals her, her sources, uh, for example, because these days when you ask Alexa for something, she seldom tells you where she got it from, but we are kind of building in that uh, functionality and seeing if that is psychologically relevant. 
Uh, we're also doing some studies on uh, VR and how VR can enhance communication of faraway news events or build empathy for people, especially people who are downtrodden and, uh, you know, get um, uh, Western readers kind of into the skin of uh, some of the people in uh, far-flung areas uh, who are really suffering. And so how certain aspects of VR technology can actually enhance uh, people's level of uh, empathy and their level of understanding uh, and also the degree to which they view these uh, stories about uh, faraway lands as uh, credible and deserving of their support. So what would you say is the biggest challenge you and researchers you're working with are looking at in the realm of technology and how we're consuming information so one of the biggest challenges uh, I think we face as communication technologies become more and more uh, prevalent is uh, kind of a direct challenge to human agency. Uh, historically, communicators have been humans and we've kind of listened to other human beings. So when we wanted to find out about something, we always talk to other humans. But lately, in the last 20 plus years, the, the, you know, the internet has become a game changer in terms of us going to technology for all kinds of information and all kinds of necessities, where previously that was something that we would do with. And that has created a kind of a tension uh, such that uh, we often have to deal with uh, kind of an artificial entity or machine agency kind of telling us what to do. And this happens very often in a very concrete scenario. For example, when you are um, browsing, uh, on the net, if you had looked for some product uh, on Amazon.com or something and, and, and uh, had abandoned that search, you had not really finished the shopping, for the next few days, you'll have ads for that product kind of creepily following you everywhere, whenever, whichever site you go to, whether it's Facebook or any other site. Right. So it's almost like there's a machine out there that kind of learned what you might be in the mood for these days and then kind of follows you. Uh, likewise, you know, Alexa is always listening. A smart speaker in your home is always listening because you have to wake her up with the wake word, Alexa, which means she cannot be just, you know, deaf to whatever is going on. And so somewhere in some server, some of what you're saying to Alexa is being recorded. Your search queries are being recorded so that next time she can serve you better. At least that's ostensibly the reason, but then that raises, you know, kind of privacy issues. Or for example, when you go um, uh, sit down in front of Netflix and you want to watch it, it'll say, these are movies that we think you like, right? It's, it's not like some people sat down in a room and said, you know, this is what uh, Katie likes or whatever, right? This is essentially a machine trying to figure out based on your patterns of behavior and your browsing and maybe even your offline activities. By offline, I mean outside of Netflix, what you might have searched for on Google or where you might have submitted a review on Rotten Tomatoes or something, and it'll pull all that together. And this is the power of big data in a way, kind of making sense of all kinds of data from all resources. But then when it comes down to actual interaction with humans, it becomes very clear that there is this independent artificial intelligence that's directing much of my communication activities and communication needs. And so I see a challenge going forth where increasingly there's going to be this kind of machine intelligence and machine agency kind of uh, almost intruding into our interactions with media 
um, thus making it not quite authentically human, even though it might meet a lot of our everyday needs in a much more efficient way than, than before. And people have to kind of negotiate uh, the, the, the benefits of getting those kinds of needs met against the costs to their privacy, costs to kind of human uh, volitional uh, control or human agency uh, and things like that. Hmm. Yeah, that makes me think of, you know, it makes me think of, of course, Facebook and how Facebook and other forms of social media are impacting how we consume the news. Have you done research on Facebook and what what have you found with how social media has impacted people's consumption of the news and what should we be doing differently as producers of the news? Sure, yeah. Uh, Facebook is increasingly the conduit for news, especially the younger generation, right? And so it's not just Facebook. Actually, college students these days don't really use Facebook. Uh, it's, you know, other social media, especially Ch Snapchat. But the point is, social media in general have become the go-to source for news. Uh, I cannot imagine a teenager flipping through a newspaper anymore. I mean, this is not the kind of generation which would, uh, you know, sit down in the morning with a newspaper with a cup of coffee or even tune in the, to NPR and listen to it. I think this is a generation that's long given up on that or never even started using that, uh, that modality of getting information. Instead, they get information in a very uh, haphazard way. It's not a daily diet, so to speak, but it comes at them through a lots of uh, different posts in different kinds of uh, social media, often on their mobile devices, on their smartphone. So uh, we have reason to believe, based on some of our research, that on mobile devices, people's attention levels are not that deep. They're, they don't process information as rigorously as they might on a laptop or even on, on print. And so necessarily people are processing everything in a very superficial, quick uh, way. And news is just keep kind of streaming at them in that way. And so as a result, I don't think there's that much engagement with deep you know, well-fleshed-out feature kind of news stories. Instead, it's a bunch of sound bites. And so in terms of processing, I feel like the, uh, the effect of all these technologies have diluted the news environment to become much more clickbaity, much more, you know, quick and dirty uh, pieces of information rather than well-researched, thorough kind of investigation. The other thing that happens with uh, getting information in these random haphazard ways is that uh, people lose track of the source of uh, news. Those of us who are journalists know that the most sacred element of communication is the source of uh, communication or the sender. And often uh, journalism is uh, judged based on the credibility of the source. If it comes from the New York Times, you would trust it much more than if it comes from the National Enquirer, for example. But then on social media, that distinction is blurred because it's your friend who is sending the story. And you have no idea whether the friend got it from a Twitter feed that Trump forwarded that was originally on Fox News or that was, you know, sourced to AP Wire or, you know, the chain of sources is so long and so murky that people don't actively follow where did this originally come from. Instead, they say, hey, uh, my friend Joe sent this to me. It must be credible. And so as a result, one of the outcomes of social media reliance on consumption of news is that uh, people lose track of the source and uh, allow fake news to thrive and disseminate. 
So what should we as journalists be doing differently to combat this problem? So there are many different ways in which, which journalists can kind of attack this problem. One of them would be to actually go into social media feeds more directly. And I know they, there was an attempt done by major news organizations to do that with Facebook, and it worked for a while, and then it kind of, uh, they pulled out a little bit. You don't see as much news as you used to a couple of years ago on Facebook. But I think uh, they have to constantly create um, innovative ways in which they can be up front and center with being the supplier of news on people's, individual people's social media feed. Uh, otherwise, what's going to happen is there are going to be intermediaries between them and the actual reader. And those intermediaries will either manipulate what is being said or actually manufacture their own facts and uh, in some way blur the distinction between that which is from a credible journalistic uh, source and from uh, a kind of a layperson uh, reconstruction uh, of an event. And so one of the more critical things uh, is to kind of get, on, get in people's uh, social media feeds uh, there's also kind of an element of media literacy that consumers have to go through. So news users, I think, will get to a point where they'll get so tired or they'll get so cynical about uh, fake news that they will have uh, a general tendency to be skeptical of any news they get. Mm -hmm. And I think we are already seeing that in some of our data where uh, people, especially young people, are uh, not quick to believe of what they read. And so this is one of the, I think, one of the benefits that has occurred due to the fake news controversy. And so that new, that kind of awareness should be kind of converted to a literacy campaign where, you know, journalism students and even uh, journalism professors and journalistic organizations should uh, teach the general masses, so to speak, the people who are not involved in journalism but who are nevertheless consumers of news to um, better seek source signal, to better look for the signal which indicates uh, who or what the source of that news is, and then proceed to make their uh, judgments about the credibility of the news that they're consuming. Right. Interesting. You sort of you sort of touched on this already earlier, but the the sort of growing apathy, I guess, that people have towards the news. And I've sort of noticed two different kind of groups of people. There seems to be the people who are super informed and care about the news, but they're only being informed in their own personal bubble of information. And then there's the people who are completely uninformed because they just say, well, I don't want to look at the news because it's too depressing or because it's too overwhelming. There's too much information. So how do we handle this sort of situation, this two different categories of of thought. So these are two entirely different problems. Yeah. In, and, you know, my lab group has looked at this uh, from several different angles over, uh, over a decade or so. So the first problem is that of information overload. And this is not just uh, specific to um, news. It's specific to pretty much everything that we do on the Internet. We are bombarded with information. Even if you want to book a ticket now to go on a vacation uh, to California or something, you'll be bombarded with choices. The moment you sit in front of the computer and start looking at all the possibilities, it's just too many things to kind of consider. And so this kind of information overload is coming from the fact that we have uh, a lot of information because of the internet 
that are available quite easily and the you know quite efficiently to the end user and so that puts the onus on uh, two groups of people one is the group that is actually designing the interface of uh, these media technologies that is delivering the information. And then the other one is the consumer of the information. And so in my lab group, we look at this as um, a problem of uh, information processing, whereby the consumers, because of the constant bombardment of information and the information overload, are necessarily having to process information in a less than systematic way. They cannot possibly go through a whole set of information in a very rigorous way because that would not be feasible given the amount of information and that's not efficient. And so instead they resort to what we call heuristic processing, which is the opposite of systematic processing. And so they, uh, heuristics basically mean different rules of thumb. They look for different cues that they can get superficial cues on the media interface and then they immediately make judgments based on those cues rather than kind of effortfully reading all the information. So a simple example would be if you're you know, booking a hotel room on TripAdvisor, instead of reading all the reviews and all the details about all the hotels and the amenities and the location and everything, people will go for how many stars it has. And that's something we do even on other e-commerce you know, sites like Amazon, for example, when we have to buy a camera and there are hundreds of cameras and you just you know, ask it to sort by star ratings. You know, the star ratings are basically what we call cues and it triggers the bandwagon heuristic, which is the idea that if everybody likes it or if many people endorse this product, then it must be good for me as well. I don't have to read all the details, but this seems to be highly rated, so I'm going to go for it. And that's a way of consumers trying to manage this information overload is by relying on these rules of thumb or heuristics. And these heuristics are based on cues that the interface offers. And so that's where the interface designer comes in. The other group that's responsible or that can be responsible in effectively transmitting information is the person designing the website or designing the mobile interface or the bank interface, whatever it is. They have to make sure that they provide enough cues to help users make uh, good decisions or decisions that they are happy with. So in some ways, the information overload problem is being solved with uh, more and more sophisticated uh, use of cues. Mm -hmm. The other problem that you talked about, which is uh, the problem of uh, filter bubbles, is really an issue coming out of uh, extreme amount of customization and personalization. Customization and personalization are basically two forms of tailoring information. And uh, both of them are biased. So when we have this information overload that we were talking about, one of the ways in which people manage is uh, they basically say, look, I'm not interested in uh, information that is uh, opposed to my point of view. I'm only interested in information that uh, aligns well with my uh, prevailing set of uh, beliefs and values and opinions. And so therefore, I'm going to kind of close some gates and only open certain gates. And that kind of tailoring that people do is called customization. So you customize your information environment to kind of meet your needs and requirements. And the flip of that, flip side of that is called personalization where the machine does that for you. In other words, 
based on your browsing of different sites or your consuming or how much time you spend on certain types of information, the system figures out, oh, you must be a Democrat. And so the system just you know, gives you stuff that you're likely to read. Uh, and so it'll end up becoming that you're getting only you know, the left side of the political spectrum and not the right if you're a Democrat. And so uh, personalization is system-driven tailoring, customization is uh, user-driven uh, tailoring. And uh, in some of our studies, we found that the degree to which the user is tech savvy, we call them power users, people who are power users, will determine whether or not you're comfortable with customization or personalization. Mm. Power users tend to customize. Non-power users or lay users, they tend to prefer the machine to do the kind of the personalization for them. And so this distinction kind of already gives us a bit of a solution, which is to say that if indeed you want people to be much more uh, proactive and agentic in what they should be looking for, then you know you should let them be a little bit of a power user and give them the tools that make them a power users, and then they can better manage the gates, you know, themselves. But on the other hand, we run into this danger of uh, what we what is uh, generally known in the literature as an echo chamber effect, you know, which is that you only get to hear voices that are similar and you know you're just see, hearing the echo of yourself and your political opinions and you don't get sufficient exposure to other points of view and so forth and so some people have suggested that personalization is a better tech you know technique in that the machines can proactively after learning that this person is a democrat can proactively feed some republican stories to them to kind of open their eyes and so forth but the data on that have not been all that encouraging because studies have shown that even when people are uh, shown the other side, they kind of dig in and become much more polarized than they were before they were shown the other side. So it kind of is counter counterproductive. That's not our research, but that's the research that uh, we're seeing kind of emerging in the field right now. I guess they see this other side uh, coming into their newsfeed as a bit of a threat, and that kind of raises their you know, kind of adherence to their point of view, and therefore uh, you resu it results in, a, in a greater, um, you know, polarization. And so in many ways, these uh, technologies of uh, tailoring are, um, are detrimental to um, the larger uh, ideal of people in a democracy deliberating based on having considered the opinions of all sides. But in terms of pure human agency, I think the technology's ability to allow users to tailor, you know, the, the ability for customization can do wonders in the long run. In other words, humans are going to be much more willing and able to engage in political deliberations because they have tools that are, you know, ready and available for them to use and easily find out information. So I think it's up to the humans in the long run to kind of realize that this polarization is not going to work out in the long run, and they're going to realize some pitfalls of polarization that's, that occurs, especially in public life, and in, in terms of policies that affect them directly and so forth. And then they are going to hopefully use the tools that initially were led to kind of filter bubble and echo chamber, the same tools for getting a broader worldview and making you know more considered judgments rather than blaming the machine for kind of the, the narrow casting. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. 
I don't want to keep you here too much longer, but do you have any advice you'd like to give to journalism students? So as a Penn State journalism student, I think um, one of the most important things you can do is uh, become very, very, very familiar with emerging technologies. And that, mean, that doesn't just mean the technologies of today, but having a kind of a temperament for technology. There's this greater onus on uh, future journalists to quickly adapt to changing technology. So we might have newer technologies that come about uh, when you're in your 20s, 30s, 40s. And if, as long as you have the temperament to kind of pick up each technology and kind of run with it, you'll be in good shape. Another thing that I think is um, you know, equally important is in terms of uh, thinking about the psychology of the news consumer. Um, you cannot expect any longer for news consumers to pay full attention to what you're saying. Uh, and so some of the things that uh, you learn in journalism, like uh, redundancy, become even more important in the age of new media because you have to kind of make sure that you have enough redundancies built into your storytelling and also you have to learn a little bit from uh, interface designers about how to build in cues that attract people. And so already you see traditional formal journalism uh, organizations um, uh, adopting clickbait, for example. You know, 30 years ago, using clickbait would have been considered a cheap sensationalist move, but now even the most respected newspapers are using clickbait headlines because they have to compete with clickbait coming from fake news and other competing sources because they are often clicked on more than uh, the actual legitimate, well-fleshed out, well-researched stories. And so you need to learn techniques uh, like clickbait and other kind of cues that will capture uh, user attention and their imagination and get them kind of hooked into your story. So you need to kind of work harder by thinking about the psychology of the news consumer in addition to you being yourself technologically savvy. Great. Thanks for talking with me today. You're most welcome. Thank you for listening to this episode of Penn State Conversations. For more information about the Donald P. Bellisario College of Communications, including the latest news and upcoming events, visit bellisario.psu.edu or find us on social media at PSU Bellisario on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter.